Do not get lost in the business of law. Let others worry about that. It can be easy to think about growing your legal practice and looking at the bottom line numbers and seeing the dollars involved. That will happen organically if you pursue continued progress as a legal professional. So don't neglect the time to do the work. And I see a lot of young lawyers coming up and they're just ready to build their book of business, but there's no way around getting experience. It's very hard to skip that process. And your experience is what determines a major aspect of the quality of the advice you serve your clients with. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is dedicated to developing innovative methods to improve the practice of law. He leads the IP practice group at Founders Legal, a tech-forward firm that provides integrative legal services to clients of all sizes and stages of development. He also serves as an advisor to the Atlantic Tech Village, where he helps a community of 120 startup companies. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Yuri Eliezer. Yuri, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before I start, I always like to ask every single guest, just for a little slice of life and a little bit of gratitude. So what is your favorite moment so far today? My favorite moment actually occurred over the past few days. I had some family in town. We went kayaking yesterday with my son and it was a good time. We managed to see some beautiful nature, peace, tranquility, and to be together with family and close friends. So very grateful for that moment. Where did you go? It's along the Chattahoochee River, and there's a dam that helps generate electricity for our community. It's nice and peaceful, and we were battling upstream in the kayak, which gave it a little bit of good exercise, so enjoyed it. Absolutely, and a little teamwork, too, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's amazing. What a wonderful time. I'm so glad you got to spend time with your family. I wanted to ask you, did you always want to be a lawyer? Well, I can't imagine always having wanted to be a lawyer, but in most of my teenage adult years, I think there was always the main focus for me. And so I decided to try that career out. And honestly, it was the only professional job I had since high school, started interning since high school. I worked my way through Georgia Tech, learning a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And I worked full-time, went to night school to study law, writing patents, practicing as a registered patent agent, before then a technical advisor, and finally a patent lawyer. So it's been a pretty focused career track for me. And so I've been able to gain a lot of years of experience, even as a younger professional, attract the right talent and the right clients to continue advancing my career as an attorney. So I've been very fortunate. So what specifically about patents piqued your interest so early on? Well, innovation, discovery, advancement of technology, it all really appealed to me. And I don't think I was ever really good enough at actually coming out with the innovation, but working alongside those who did, I found to be compelling as a career choice. So I took that route. How did you even know that it was patents specifically that you wanted to do? Like, was there a conversation? Actually, it was Ideas and Opinions by Albert Einstein. And it was just a various compilation of different letters he's written. And snippet in the bio section mentioned that he was a patent clerk at the Swiss Patent Office. I think it was actually when he developed some of his 
interesting theories. So I thought, well, let me give that a shot. So I, I did. And I was very grateful that I read that book at that time. And that's some of the career advice I get younger people is that follow what your role models path, because if they're really a role model, then why reinvent the wheel? Go, go for it the way they did. So when you decided, okay, like I'm going to move forward with this, you said you were in high school and then eventually you became a patent administrator? Yeah. So to practice patent law, you're required to take a bar exam administered by the United States Patent Trademark Office. And you can sit for that bar exam upon the successful completion of a technical degree, which my engineering degree qualified. And then you're registered to represent inventors and applicants before the USPTO, much like a patent lawyer would. So patent lawyers and patent agents often have a lot of overlap. And being a patent attorney, you have more of a judicial perspective on how patents are litigated, how patents are enforced, and what arguments might work, what arguments might not work, because you're trained in reading legal opinions. Honestly, outside of that, patent agent has a lot of competencies in handling patent prosecution, which is representing applicants before the United States Patent Training Office, the USPTO. Yeah, I know a little bit about this because when I was also before law school, I actually worked full time for a Siemens Corporation. And so I worked in their patent law department and I learned a lot about that. What I didn't know was that you can actually sit for the patent exam before you become a lawyer and become a patent agent. I had no idea that that was a thing. So that's really interesting that you did that first, really understood what that entailed, and then that helped you better understand, okay, I wanna take the next step and become a lawyer as well. That's right. So then you told me that you ended up going to law school at night while you were working full-time as a patent agent? It's not uncommon for actually patent attorneys because oftentimes patent attorneys come from technical backgrounds where they've already had a profession and a career, like the evening program at Georgia State University. It's one of the higher rated programs in the United States, very popular and fast growing school. I liked it because you're shoulder to shoulder with also other individuals who are mid-career, whereas the full-time law students, oftentimes they haven't had a chance to yet develop and grow their career. They're going straight from undergraduate studies to law school full-time. So you get a very interesting diversity of classmates in the part-time program at night. We call ourselves the night walkers. I love that. The night walkers. Because during the day, we have, you know, a full-time job and we take a little break, maybe go to the gym, get some food, and then you're in class till 9, 10 o'clock in the evening. That sounds challenging. I mean, where do you get the time to study for exams and to write your papers? And it takes a little bit longer, too. You know, taking summer classes, it takes a full year longer to get done. But then when you're out, of course, you're like, wow, I've got all this free time. Yeah, makes you so grateful for that. And you've got a job lined up because you've already been working. You're much more a hireable candidate at that point. So you graduate from law school. You're a patent attorney with a lot of experience under your belt. Did you have a plan in mind? Did you want to go into a firm? Did you want to start your own firm? What was your plan? Well, the plan started with the passage of the America Invents Act. The American Invents Act changed our patent system in a fundamental way. We were one of the few countries in the world that maintained the first to invent patent standard, which means the applicant must prove that they were the first to invent their innovation. And if the patent examiner found evidence that their invention, let's say, 
six months before they filed for patent on it, someone already published a similar invention. The applicant was permitted to submit evidence with a date, signature, an affidavit to show that, in fact, their conception predated the earlier publication that the patent examiner might have found and that they worked with a good amount of diligence to reduce their conception to practice. And if they can prove that, they could backdate prior art the examiner cites during patent prosecution. Well, that is known as the first invent standard. The international standard across most of the countries in the world was first to file. Meaning, oh, we're not going to trust any extrinsic evidence submitted during the patent prosecution process. Let's just treat the filing date as the priority right for the applicant without relying on any uh, affidavits. And that created a race to the patent office that earlier stage companies were, I would say, a little more at the disadvantage against bigger companies. They were perhaps not as equipped to prepare to file patents so early on. And so that created a demand, all those emerging technology companies who now needed to file a patent sooner than ever before. And so that's when I started planning because I was at a very big and prestigious firm that served, you know, the top 1% of patent filers. And what I mean by the top 1% of filers probably file 33% of all the patents, right? If not more. So I decided to begin to pivot into that technology entrepreneur client. They were the ones who needed the most help. They're the ones who are, I would say, substantially disadvantaged by the new laws. So they needed representation. And for them to work with a big firm that represents the bigger clients, there would be a conflict of interest issue. Then a big firm might not want to take a small client doing that nice advanced technology because they might have a big client come with the same technology and they can't represent both. So that and a few other reasons made it more difficult to represent earlier stage companies in a firm that represents large multinational patent filers. And also financial barriers, right? Like someone that's perhaps a smaller entrepreneur probably couldn't afford the fees. Well, it's important to understand why they might not have afforded it. It's because when you work with a firm that's equipped to serve large patent filers, they do benefit from economies of scale. Whereas if you only have one or two applications to file, you don't necessarily need to pay for, for those economies of scale. Got it. So you actually graduated, went to a large firm, and then decided based on this new standard that was created that you were going to go out and you were going to start to help other people that were disadvantaged by this new law. That's right. That still rings true today. Although a lot of our clients have matured and become multinational corporations themselves of the Past decade, I'd say there's still a strong need for smaller entities to be able to adequately procure and enforce their patent rights in the current patent system. And believe me, it's something that the entire community of patent professionals is fighting to make sure that the courts come out with the right rulings, to make sure that Congress passes the right legislation, to make sure that the delicate balance of leveling the playing field, which is in part what the patent system is designed to do, remains true to its purpose. On that note, actually, I read that you were one of the very few attorneys that's been invited by the USPTO to provide technical training and industry insights at the Patent Examiner Technical Training Program. Is that like where you were sharing some of those insights? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Through the work we do for our clients, we were invited to discuss scenarios in which earlier stage companies might find it difficult to enforce patent rights. And so it was very important for patent examiners to hear the consequences of their examination process. One problem with the patent system 
is a human problem. Even the best, most competent examiners, they miss certain prior art disclosures that would have perhaps invalidated the patents that they would otherwise grant us. In other words, sometimes patent applicants are awarded patents, even though they're not the first to come up with the invention. And that reduces patent quality. Again, it's not a competency issue. It's just a human issue. Imagine all the world of prior art. I say often an article in Korea written in Korean that discloses some aspect of the invention that a patent applicant submitted to the USPTO is still relevant prior art. How can we expect our patent examiners to find that? But you better believe that during patent enforcement, if you're going up against a player who really intends to, let's say, keep their technology and keep infringing on your patent rights, they're going to go ahead and find everything they can and submit it for re-examination, for review of your patent, which adds to the cost. And oftentimes patent applicants, they find themselves, my goodness, now I have to pay to re-examine my patent and I hope that I get a favorable ruling. So... I was grateful for the opportunity to share with patent examiners those downstream consequences of the work they do on earlier stage applicants. It's super important to see the whole picture, right? Not just the piece in which you're playing in and really understand how your piece affects everything moving forward. And I think it's a wonderful thing that you were able to do that at the USPTO. I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Talk to me about Founders Legal. How did it start? Why did you start it? And Tell me a little bit about what differentiates you from other types of firms. Well, I am a co-founder of Founders Legal. Me and my co-founders met at the Atlanta Tech Village working on our legal tech startup company. We all left the big firm and decided to try some legal technology that we can put in the consumer's hands to provide a greater, more efficient access to justice, to help people secure their legal rights and the best way technology can allow for efficiencies and quality purposes. So we were working on technology. We didn't want to actually go back to practicing law, but we found that during the process of being submersed in the Atlanta tech community, people were coming in these for patents and trademarks. And one of my co-founders, Jeffrey DeCaris, they were going to him for corporate work and securities work and fundraising work. And he said, look, this is still what's paying the bills. Our legal tech companies, they're not really making much money. Why don't we merge and, and actually formalized the legal work we've been doing on the side anyway. And that's how Founders Legal came to be. And we decided to name Founders because we were founders ourselves. We were lawyers that were founders and we stayed true to that. And a lot of the attorneys that had joined had a different professional career before becoming lawyers. They had entrepreneurial type backgrounds. And so the brand we'd established is that we're founders, we're practical. We've done it all. And in our firm, we've got corporate securities, M&A, international and domestic intellectual property from trademarks to patents. And so we provide a well-rounded list of offerings that bring value to other executives and founders of technology companies. Talk to me about Atlantic Tech Village, where you're helping over 120 startup companies. Yeah, sure. As a result of us being tech entrepreneurs, we became the first and only law firm permitted in incubators up and down the East Coast. While big name firm brands sponsor these accelerators and incubators financially, we actually worked with their companies because we were one of them. And that really helped us get the traction to establish our firm at a foundational level. Because we were tech entrepreneurs, we were able to access these other tech entrepreneurs and provide them legal services. We trusted each other. We had mutual respect for each other. What does it look like to be an advisor there? You've got to put the business aside and you have to focus on helping your community. Ultimately, it's 
the greatest use, I think, of non-productive, non-billable time is to put your strengths as a lawyer, serve your target audience in a way that others can only do in a business setting. So that's number one. Number two is being an entrepreneur, you don't just focus on their specific areas. I'm talking to a CEO. Now they've got employees, they've got sales, they've got contractors, they've got partnership agreements, and all of those are going to want a piece of the IP. Let me advise this entrepreneur what they should expect, not just about patents, but about everything around the process and make sure that the few dollars they have to spend don't go towards IP if they don't absolutely have a strong reason to do so. So you're able to take it down to that level, I would say. I think I'm seeing a theme here, which is that even in your advising of clients or other people in the community, again, just like you did with the USPTO, you're taking a step back and you're looking at the larger picture. Like you said, I don't look at just the focus through the lens of a patent, but I look at everything that's going on around this entrepreneur's life. That's right. That's something that all of our attorneys at Founders Legal strive to be is truly trusted advisors, not just within the scope of our specific competency or niche competency, you may say, uh, but also uh, just a well-rounded perspective that we'd like to hear about their challenges because we have a team that is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what trusted advisors provide isn't just for specific competency, but a much greater access to more knowledge and experience. So I want to dig there a little bit. Let's say that you're talking to a junior associate or a new associate that's coming to your firm and they're saying, Yuri, I get that you look at the big picture. I get that you're looking at all of these different aspects. What advice do you give to this person on how they can implement that themselves? What are some of the things that you're doing practically that you could pass on? If you're going to a, a networking event, you better be going because you're genuinely passionate about the subject matter. That you see yourself as a peer, a genuine academic, or any kind of hobby curiosity. You're going because it's something that truly genuinely interests you. If you wouldn't make a dollar of business out of this event, go there because you want to learn and you want to be surrounded by the people you like to be around. So I try to remain focused on business development through that lens and network building through that lens. That really helps to build a trusted advisor relationship. But when you go to, let's say, an event like this, what are some ways in which you foster relationships with people that you meet? Know your audience. Every circle is going to have a different approach. For me, I ask myself, could I invite this person over to my house for drinks, have a good time and develop a friendship? So you said something earlier about it's so important to help your community. Why is it so important to you to help your community? And where do you think that comes from? I guess I could take it a little bit philosophical route. One thing I hear about uh, folks in an older community when they've already perhaps outlived their spouse and they have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, is that being alone is very difficult. Being on your own, not having someone to share experiences with is, from what I've heard, one of the most difficult things to endure, loneliness. And being part of a community is truly a blessing. It's a gift. And being integrated in a community adds to the beautiful colors of life and give to your community to add to the color that others experience in their life as well. And overall, it's a beautiful way of living. I like that you took it philosophical. I like this imagery that you used of just, it provides more to the colors of life and that you can contribute to others. I love that. So beautiful. Maybe you've gone into the wrong profession. Maybe you should be a philosopher or a writer. <laughs> oh, everyone does that. I don't know. That's true. You think everyone does that? I think you put it really beautifully. I don't know that everyone can do that. 
I'll see. That's must invite you for a couple of drinks to my house then. There we go. See, <laughs> yes, I got the invite. <laughs> what does leadership in law mean to you? First is to always continue your education. Contribute your perspective as a thought leader if you can, or at least read the perspective of other thought leaders. Stay at the advanced cutting edge of your industry. I guess first prong of leadership. The second would be to work with a team with a very good set of core values and principles that you align with that fits with your culture. Because you can't go as far on your own as you can with a great team of people. The third is to provide the best and the greatest access to legal justice that you can to your community, to your jurisdiction, where you're licensed. What you're doing should bring value to your clients and you should be the leader at bringing value to your clients. And you should strive to scale that, to amplify that. If you're doing good, if you find some good value, increase the scalability of that value proposition so you can provide the greatest access to justice as possible. So continue learning, establish core values with a great team that will align with those values and continue to ensure that you're providing the highest quality of access of justice to your community. Yes, exactly. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I'd like for the enforcement of intellectual property rights to be accessible to everybody who has intellectual property rights. Right now in our country, you can get intellectual property rights, but you have to achieve certain economies of scale for enforceability to make sense. On one hand, I think that's a good thing. I think that limited monopolies, which is what intellectual property rights provide, could be very detrimental to society as a whole if there's not a perfect balance. And what we're letting balance the system today is who's got the most money. If you've got the most money, that must mean you're the most successful. And the system is you can play that game very well. You might have, however, the greatest innovation, the greatest technology, but you'll have to attract money before you could make use of the IP system today. You won't be able to do it on a $0 budget. And you have industries who team up from other countries, say Japan, to help each other enforce their patent rights internationally to keep the costs manageable. So let's take care of our patent trademark and copyright owners. It's not enough, perhaps, just to say, great, you have a right, you've earned it, but level the playing field in a way that money is not the biggest factor of a determined success. It's not a bad factor, but maybe we should consider other factors as well. It's fascinating. It's definitely the first time I've ever heard an answer to this question in that way, and I love it. It's great perspective. It really is something to consider. And like you said, it's an important factor, but it shouldn't be potentially the only factor that we're considering in this country. All right, next question. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. Do not get lost in the business of law. Let others worry about that. It can be easy to think about growing your legal practice and looking at the bottom line numbers and seeing the dollars involved. That will happen organically if you pursue continued progress as a legal professional. So don't neglect the time to do the work. And I see a lot of young lawyers coming up and they're just ready to build their book of business, but there's no way around Getting experience to see as much as you can is very hard to skip that process. And your experience is what determines a major aspect of the quality of the advice you serve your clients with. 
It's really interesting because there's been such an emphasis on the business of law because the business of law was so lacking. So I think it's really interesting to hear, but don't forget the actual practice itself. What is like just a small piece of advice that you could give to someone on how they could ensure that they're not focusing so deeply on the business of law while still ensuring that they're creating a livelihood? Very simple. It's something I ask all of my colleagues as well. What is the most intricate service you could provide as a lawyer for your client? And that should be changing every year to two years to three years. You should keep advancing, adding, refining. If you're focused on getting as many trademark filings done as an attorney and not focused on, let's say, going through as many appeals, re-exam, or even taking a case up the circuit, trying to find that legal work that is very specialized and keep advancing that process. I think that you'll plateau a little fast. So keep advancing the sophistication you're capable of serving yourself to your clients. Excellent advice. And last question, what do you do for self-care? Try to listen to what my wife tells me to do. <laughs> she says I, I tend to torture myself staying up late at night. So what I'd like to improve on my self-care is a sleep regimen with the discipline that my life has. She sounds like a really wise woman. Sleep is important for sure. Well, I want to thank you so much, Yuri, for being here today. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way that they can do so? Yuri at founderslegal.com. And you can find us at founderslegal.com. Add me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to have a conversation. Thank you so much, Yuri, for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.